I am delighted to be with you today. And we're going to read two passages of Scripture, both of which aren't short. I mean, they're not whole books or anything, but I, I have uh, on my heart to read two passages. And I will begin first in Genesis. If you would turn there with me, please. Genesis 2, verses 16, 17, and then I'm going to turn the page and go into chapter 3. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. And then, parenthetically, at the end of this chapter, I want to add this in. They shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Well, that's not how things remained. We know some of the story. Uh, but it serves us well to consider some of the impact, and we will. But they heard the sound of the Lord God walking. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife themselves had hid themselves from the presence of the Lord uh, God from among the trees of the garden. And then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Adam answered, I heard, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And the Lord said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, Well, the woman you gave me to be with, she gave me from the tree and I ate it. And the Lord said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. And the Lord said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast in the field? On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife in these things, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. And by the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and Eve and his wife, and he clothed them. The next passage for our consideration comes from the book of Ezekiel. Not well read. In fact, the ancients prevented anyone from under 30 from actually reading this book because it was so deep, sometimes discouraging, 
And the visions that were contained in it were often mysterious and difficult to understand. That prohibition is lifted for everyone this morning. <laughs> in uh, chapter 36, just a quick verse. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. And then this great passage, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. He caused me to pass among them round about, and behold, there were very many, and on the surface of the valley, and lo, they were very dry. He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, Oh, Lord God, you know. Again he said to me, Prophesy or preach over these bones and say to them, Oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you that you may come to life. I will put sinews on you, make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin, and put breath in you that you may come alive. You will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied or preached as I was commanded, and as I preached there was a noise, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, sinews were on them, and flesh grew, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he, the Lord, said to me, Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, the ruach, the spirit, literally the word. Thus says the Lord God, Come forth from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may come to life. So I prophesied, and he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they came to life and stood on their feet, an exceeding great army. And then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Let's pray. Lord, capture our hearts and our minds with these words. Press them deep into our soul, our psyche. By them, continue to call us, nourish us, heal us. And grant us your grace and favor in these things this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, there are a lot of images all through the Bible, images and illustrations of salvation. And the difference between those whom the Lord saves and who he does not. And so we have that, the, the change, of, you know, the slaves and those who are free. We have people who walk in darkness, people who walk in light. There's the flesh, there's the spirit, there are the wise ones, there are the foolish ones. We have numerous ways in which the, the scriptures depict or illustrate or bring to us an image of what God has accomplished in our lives. And today I just want to flash before us two of them. These stories are brilliant descriptions of the Lord's work. One is about being covered, 
naked. Can we say naked in church, Rob? Okay. Come on, guys. Back to me. These stories are brilliant descriptions of the Lord's work in our lives. Naked and dead. Exposed and no life. One of these stories is this one we just read is the greatest vision of all things that have ever occurred on earth. There are greater visions in the scripture, but those take place in heaven. And so I'll subsume this one as the greatest vision on earth. The other, though, the first, the Genesis narrative, uh, is in fact narrative. It's not vision. It's not uh, something seen that's uh, illustrative of something that's happening. It is real. It is conversation. It is consequences that are described for us. And those consequences are what we will also talk about this morning. So as we go through these scenes, there will be a little bit of theology. There will be some psychology. But it all leads us to what's called in soteriology, salvation, salvation. This vision of the valley of dry bones is a spectacular vision. One writer called it the greatest dream in the world. And it's a vision of what happens to the human person who is dead in his trespasses and sins, but God being rich in mercy makes him alive. It's the vision of born again, of the ungodly people coming from their spiritual death and corruption into new life. It's a vision of the Lord at work. It's a vision of true revival. But I just, I want us to notice just a few things. Ezekiel's called to preach to the bones, say to the bones, prophesy to the bones. And he does, and it it causes a little stirring, a little rattling. Some things happen. The Word of God is accomplishing something. But then he's called to preach, beseech the Spirit, so that the Spirit would come from the four corners of the earth, and the Spirit comes and breath is put into them, and there's new life. So what we have here, is an example of the reality of where salvation comes from. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. It is the Word of God that is sharper than any two-edged sword and able to divide between soul and spirit and joint and flesh. And then we have the description, a brief one, but the work of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who gives life. It is the Holy Spirit who awakens our hearts and our minds to what the Word of God is accomplishing. It is the Holy Spirit by whom we are born again. You must be born again of water and the Spirit. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Lots of people hear the Word of God. Lots of people know some things about a little bit of theology and even a lot of theology. Some of the scholars who are writing today regarding the Scriptures have a profound understanding of original languages, a deep understanding of the etymology of words, 
an incredible grasp and, and precision about the history of theology, but they're unbelievers. They don't believe there's a living God. They don't believe the Word is God's revelation and inspired and inerrant. They just have knowledge. The Lord has not come, as we hear that statement in the book of Acts in regard to Lydia in the church of Philippi, and the Lord Spirit opened her heart to understand these things. The Word and the Spirit And Ezekiel is called to, and we are also called to, preach to the world. But in your hearts, honor Christ as the the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. One of the amazing things is, and it is revealed in this book of Ezekiel, and it is over and over and over again uh, brought to our attention in the New Testament, is that God chooses to use people in order to communicate His Word and then send His Holy Spirit to make that Word alive. Ezekiel stood there trying to answer the question from God, can these bones live? I don't know, you know. Say to the bones, preach. And there was some stirring and rattling. Pray to the Holy Spirit. Pray that the Spirit will come so that there's new life. Pray that the Spirit will take the Word and make people alive in Christ. And in this beautiful picture, this beautiful, wonderful vision that Ezekiel experiences, at a time when all of Israel had been taken, or the house of Israel had been taken into exile, Their hope was gone, their temple was gone, their tabernacle, rather, was gone, their holy places were gone, their prophets were gone, their kings were gone. Everything that reminded them of the very presence of God had been obliterated. And God comes and says, it's not about your system of worship. It's not about your priesthood. It's not about the place where you go to worship. It's about my word, and it's about my spirit. So preach the Word and pray that the Spirit will make people alive in Christ. And we have here quickly, though, also the great doctrine of grace. That Reformed doctrine of grace that in the time of the Reformation just turned the theological world upside down where it was no longer the church dispensing salvation. It was no longer the people of the people of the land who were hungry and thirsting and wanting deliverance who had to pay for some kind of modicum with an indulgence that the church would hand out by its ritual, the church would hand out by its requirements, salvation. And one of their priests foolishly read the Bible and found out that salvation is by grace. And through that process of the Reformation that changed the world, and we are the children of that Reformation, our day of independence is a product of the Puritan belief in, in the freedom of conscience and the freedom of, of God to establish order and in the Word and the power of the Spirit to maintain and, and contain life. And from those people, from those reformers, came this doctrine of grace. And so this is a scene of desolation. 
verses 1 and 2. It's personal, it's institutional, it's congregational, it's national. There are bones, and there are a lot of them, and they are very dry, signifying utter death. It's not a heap of bodies in which there may be some that might still have a breath and a heartbeat among them. These are, it's a scene of utter desolation. And then, secondly, we understand it's the initiative of God who decides to save. He brings Ezekiel with him. Can these bones live? What a, you know. Okay. Preach. It's a numbered resurrection. These, these are the whole house of Israel. An Old Testament phrase, the whole house of Israel, to them meant something very ethnic. To us, something very evangelical. All of the world, at any place, at any time, who come to faith by the power of the word and the operation of the Spirit of God in them. There are, there are people here from all over the world this morning. I've met a few. I'm not going to identify or ask to stand, but this is the work of God around the world where you meet Christians. I've met Christians in Africa, in Asia, in Europe, that they believe in Jesus. Because Jesus, by the power of the Word, has come to them, and the work of the Holy Spirit has opened their hearts to understand these things, and now they believe and have faith, and they know there's a Creator. That is great news. But it's numbered. It's these ones. And it happens. It's irresistible. Bone comes to bone, and sinew appears, and muscle, and flesh, and I mean, I I can't imagine. Can you imagine being there? It's just spectacular. And he hears it. He hears it happening. Because the Word is truth, and the Spirit fulfills all of the promise that God has made. It happens. And then the final... God's work remains. They stood. Are you standing this morning? (laughs) Has that work been accomplished in your life? Have you been made new? Have you been made alive? What's it mean to be made alive? There's a lot. But just briefly, awakened in our hearts and souls and our minds to the reality that there's a living God. A triune living God of Father, Son, and Spirit. We're awakened in our awakening to our sin, to the, the our sense of unholiness, and a growing aware of God, a growing awareness of God's holiness. We would have a hunger for the Word of God. Being made alive means we have a desire to please God. A growing knowledge of God's purposes and ways around us, but in us and a deepening understanding of my place and my giftings in Christ's kingdom. I mean, it's, it's that. It's so much more. It's awesome. It's unbelievable. And I can just illustrate it just with a brief story from my own experience in this congregation. 
from years past. A man had come to me for counsel, and he came to my office, and he was elderly. And I always like to ask, he was also widowed, I like to ask their life story. What'd you do? Where did you come from? What are the types of labor that you've performed in your life? What were some of your experiences? And, and he began to tell me some of these things. And then I switch over to, I say, well, tell me about when you came to Jesus. Because I love salvation stories. I have one. And he started to tell me, well, I went to this church, and when I was in the army, I went to that church, and I got close with the chaplain, and when I got out, we got married, and we went to another church, and then we came here, and I've been in here for 23 years, and I've sung in the choir three times a day. And I come at Christmas time, and I help them put up their decorations. And I tried to re-steer back and, and say, well, yeah, but when, when did that, when did you take Jesus? When did you understand his work? And it wasn't there, and so I began to redirect all of the conversation. And I drew him into that conversation of relationship with the Lord and the awakening of the Word and asking him about, you know, confidence at going and being in heaven and he wasn't too confident and I asked him well what do you think are God's requirements and how does he accomplish those things and have you ever in your life Bob prayed and said Lord forgive me be my savior and he said no I never did that and I said well You've been in this church and you've heard one of the great preachers of the 20th century, a great gospel preacher for 23 years, and you heard him three times a day, two early services and one evening service. I said, what, what did you understand him to be talking about? Why did you not fathom what he was getting at? I, I wasn't trying to coerce him into doing something that he's already aware of and done, just we're on different pages with the language. And he said, no, I, I just never believed it was for me. And so we prayed. He prayed in tears. I, rem I, I think if I recall my admin, we were out in the outer office at a little desk, at a little table, and uh, um, Kathy Key kind of got up and, and went out, and, and we had those moments with someone coming to Jesus in tears. Some month, months later, he was hospitalized, and... He had a very serious, he had very serious heart issues, and I went to visit him and came into his room. I just saw before I got in, it was, he was all hooked up. He had wires and hoses and tubes and everything coming out of everything and everywhere. And I went in, and he saw me, and I'm telling you, that old man just about raised up out of that bed, and he was saying, you know, you, you know, I'm alive in Christ. I've never been more alive. And, and then all of the beepers went off and the nurses came rushing in. <laughs> it's a great vision. It's a great truth. Jesus Christ saves and makes us alive. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that's not of yourself. It's the gift of God, not of works, so that no one will boast, and then later, but Thanks be to God, who being rich in mercy, makes us alive. No longer bones. Well, the other image I want to switch over to quickly. Genesis chapter 3. 
This is not vision. This is not imagery. This is not a story or a picture given to us as an illustration of something. These are narrative statements of the immediate profound consequences of sin. And by God's choice, these are the ones He reveals first to us. Because, and try to imagine. I mean, this is personal. This is you. You're the believer. You're Adam and you're Eve. The Lord God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, standing, you standing before Him, and Him asking you to give Him an explanation. And I don't care how well you're dressed. The New Testament says when the Lord returns, people are going to be trying to bury themselves under the rocks. Hide themselves from His glory. Shield themselves from His holiness. But this passage reveals something, some things very quickly. Number one, Adam speaks, I. Should have been a we. Where there should have been an us, we, and our presentation before the Lord with husband and wife, Adam and Eve together, it was an I. He's no longer in that mold and pattern of becoming one with Eve. He's backing up. And then he's afraid. And under a, a, a profound fear of standing before the Lord and knowing, at least in part, it's part of the consequences of sin is we, we barely know in part even the things that we want to know well, we can only grasp and capture in its most minor form. We look into a badly smoky, distorted mirror and get the image. But for Adam, it was terror. Why? He was naked. At one time they were naked and not ashamed and they were standing before the Creator and it was a glorious thing. Now they've sewn up leaves and they're hiding in the bushes trying to cover themselves and, and being obscure. And then he's blaming. It's the wife you gave me. It's the serpent who made me. And then there's that enigmatic statement of control. Your desire will be for him and he will rule over you. Her desire should have only ever been for the Lord, and Adam was never given the command to rule or, or govern over her. It's gone wrong. And then there's problems, other consequences, childbirth now, now the physical labor of childbirth. I, I hear it's not all, it's not, it's, not, it's not what they say it is. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> uh, but I tell you what, it doesn't come close to the heartache, the pain of soul, until you know your children walk in faith. And when they don't walk that well, when they don't have that evidence, there's pain in childbirth.
These are the things first revealed as far as the consequences of sin. They are relational. There are others. There's darkness of mind. There's separation from God. There's pain and suffering and death and ignorance and foolishness and all manner of other things of rebellion and hatred toward God. And all of these aspects come later and are filled in. But right here, there's alienation. Alienation from God. Alienation from God's highest uh, creation uh, week. At the end of the week, they, the two of them were together, and then it was very good. There's alienation that has seeped in and destroyed and is eating away, eroding at it. It's like acid. And all of that standing before God. The gulf. Dead. They suffered that spiritual death. And their lives began to reflect all of the consequences of that sin with each other, turn the page with their family, turn the page with humanity spreading, turn the pages, turn the pages and find out that what was created has now fallen. It has fallen in unbelievable ways, not just as a story in the past for us to remind ourselves of theological themes, but we are the fallen. We have been the fallen. We are still living in a world the consequences of the thorns and the thistles and the falling and the sin and the rebellion and the alienation is still at work and we live it every day. We feel it every day. We are inflicting it every day. We are victims of it every day. Before God and then before each other. Let me explain. The two that were supposed to be one are now people who try and by nature to be alone and selfish and inveterately unable to deeply and in a, in a fulfilling way be one with someone else. It's so hard. It is so difficult. The two that are supposed to be one are now uh, full of conflict and full of alienation and recrimination and blaming and everything else. And they're still married. <laughs> there was no going away moment. There was no start over moment. It was a continuing moment. A moment warned of the consequences informed of, but then the promises heralded of. They were afraid. There are many ways in which we as people are afraid, but when it comes to human relationships, we have real fears and we have unreal fears. We have a fear that someone won't love me, that someone doesn't like me, that so I won't live up to somebody else's expectations, that somebody's going to see a flaw in me, that I won't be competent and capable of managing whatever it is I'm supposed to be. They don't like me and I'm afraid. They don't love me and I'm, I'm to blame in some way. I'm afraid they won't know that I, I am, that I have gifts. I'm afraid they won't see me for who I am. 
We have all kinds of fears and anxieties about not having another person see us the way we need to be seen. You know, there's all kinds of studies. I take these words from, uh, it's, I believe it's Dr. Larry Crabb from many years ago, but there's, there's just a few core things that we all need and we all want spiritually, but also emotionally. We need genuineness. We need truth. We need to tell each other the truth. We need to be able to speak the truth in love. But we need to be able to know that what someone tells me in my life or to my life, that they're honest. Oh, we struggle with that. No one's going to stand up and say, I'm, a, I'm the greatest liar. But we all are. Then we need empathy. I need someone to care for me and understand me without criticism and judgment. I want you to understand who I am. I want you to care for what I'm like. I want you to be kind and gracious and be empathetic toward me. Not dismissive or judgmental or critical. Genuineness, empathy, respect. Here's something that we need. I need you to value me and what I can do, and who I am, and to validate my being. I need you to need me in a respectful way that says, you're wonderful, you're gifted, you're able, you're competent to respect somebody. And then the last thing, genuineness, empathy, respect, and belonging. I need to feel that I'm yours. The two shall become one. That's what we're afraid of. Those things escaping us or being denied us or being betrayed in us. And then we're naked. Can we say naked in church? <laughs> this is really exposed. I'm just standing here and, and, and you know who I am and what's going on. Exposed. Marriage exposes us. It's bringing us into that excruciating proximity of relationship where we can't just get away. Dating, fun times all. Engaged, mostly fun times. Bring it home. Whew, unbelievable. Sometimes it starts on the honeymoon. I had no idea they'd be like this. See, I got gotcha. you. And that's, that's also the kind of work that I do here in this church. And not only the minister of pastoral care, but I'm developing and hopefully, and I have elders, uh, a number of the elders of the church on a committee and, some, and, and a number of uh, lay people putting together, structuring, how do we help marriage? How do we help people get through this naked and ashamed and afraid and hiding and blaming and controlling? It's all part of what we're, we'll, we'll attend to. So we hide. Now, Adam and Eve were trying to hide behind a couple of leaves in the bushes. Couldn't hide. How do we hide? We lie. We ignore. Even though 
Now, this is in marriage, but this is also in other relationships. To a lesser degree, marriage is the one that exposes us the most. We demand, we're selfish, we have all kinds of verbal warfare, we criticize, we minimize, we manipulate. We interrupt conversation. We will not listen. We decide what we want to hear, what we don't want to hear. We hijack somebody else's need to communicate. We have excuses and more excuses and further excuses for why we do what we do. We have the look. We have, we have the glare, the posture. We have the, the tensing up just to let somebody know, hey, you know, back up. Yelling, snide humor, judging, silent treatment, blowing up, threats, verbal, emotional, physical, denying and lying, abandoning, the cold shoulder, icing somebody out, nagging, swearing, the perfectionist, bossing, guilting somebody, skulking around and sulking around, crying. Defensiveness in all of its glory. Now, I think I've tried just about every one of these. And I took good measure which ones work the best. And so do you. You ever ask the question, especially husbands and wives, just ask this question. Do you ever find your health... Uh, do you ever find yourself having the same argument over the same things in the same way and the same and coming to the same result? I was afraid because I'm naked, so I hide. And we want to blame. We have an inveterate need to make it somebody else's fault. And we control. We're consumed with these relational difficulties. We learn them in our sinful nature from our childhood moving forward and we develop the ways and means by which we're going to cope and our little comfort zone is going to have safety and security but your set of fears and blaming, controlling and hiding and their set of fears and hiding and blaming and controlling are in conflict with each other and that makes for all kinds of frustration. And then we try to overcome. You know, all of the choices that we have made in life, in the end, those choices make us. Your marriage is God's plan to bring you together so that you each, behind the covering of the Lord, which we're getting to, you will find, you will craft, wrestle, and renew. And the two shall indeed again become one. And those who are naked and ashamed will become naked and unashamed again. I traveled to a village in South Sudan years ago. And upon arriving in the village, there was just my friend Don and I, many of you know him, and uh, as we drove into the village, we noticed just off, off the path, the road, just behind some trees, a young woman, and she was naked. And that's not entirely unusual or a rarity because malaria, the type of malaria prevalent in that area, would, would reduce people to such fever and cerebral complications that they would strip off their clothes and run around and... Most of the time when we saw that, we'd, we'd realize someone has malaria. They have falciparum malaria. 
But the next day, as we were meeting with people, all of a sudden our attention was drawn to the voice of a woman screaming, and we turned to the scream, and what we observed was a handful of men ripping the clothing off of that same young girl who then fled back into the bush. We asked, what's happening? Why is this? But we were not given. They wouldn't tell us. There was this reluctance, like, we can't talk about this. And even when we pressed our interpreter to press for more information, it was, no, no. Finally, we were taken to a chief in that village, and he told us. He said, another man in a different village had paid a dowry price for a pure bride. And that dowry was given to her parents, and that girl was given to him as his wife. But he was, for whatever reason, displeased with her in some way, and he had returned her, and he wanted his dowry back. And the family refused. They were not going to take her back into their home, and they were not going to return that dowry to him. So in order to shame the family, to shame the village, and anyone who would ever be offended by this breach of pro Whenever she showed up, and she couldn't, listen, I, she can't go to another village. There's, you can't leave. Your village is who you are. You stay there. You can't run from these things. And so when she was clothed, it was everyone's task to strip her, to shame the family, to pay back the price, so that the shame on the whole village would be lifted. But they wouldn't do it. No sanctuary for him. She was an outcast, naked and ashamed. And so we went to the chief, and we asked, how can we help? Can we do anything? What can we do? He said, pay the dowry. Pay back the price. And so we did. We negotiated with that chief who negotiated with the other chief. And at the end of the day, the dowry price was paid. The girl was now free from not only the shame, but the control of her own family who would not redeem her. She was dressed, and she came running to us and threw herself at our feet and wept and cried and thanked us for removing her shame. Can you imagine? Be that girl. Be that person, stripped of dignity, bereft of cover, unprotected, unwanted. And she cried, and we were kind of worried that it might have been mistaken in that one of us had actually bought a bride. And we were ready to flip a coin to see who was going to make the call home. <laughs> but it wasn't that. Jesus removes our shame. The Lord took skins and covered them. Where do skins come from? There are some that believe that in this little, the Lord took skins and covered them. The Lord was teaching Adam how to make a sacrifice. An animal was taken. Blood was shed. Death occurred. A covering was made. Does that sound familiar? Jesus Christ died to save sinners. 
Jesus removes our shame by covering our nakedness. Look, I want us to leave here this morning with just these two images seared into our hearts. You're nothing but skin and bones, made alive and covered by the grace of God.